has been. How important is the Word of God in your life? The Bible, Scripture, how important is it to you? Do you engage it regularly? Are you receptive to letting it shape and form who you are? We turn today to Jeremiah 36 as we bring our series on this book to a close. And we find Jeremiah and his scribe, Baruch, sharing the word of the Lord, hoping that God's people will see just how important it is and be receptive to it. If you have your Bibles in whatever format you happen to bring it this morning, please open with me to Jeremiah chapter 36, or it will also be on the screen in the NIV. We begin in verse 1, and since we're talking about God's Word today, I figured we should read the whole chapter. If, that, if we're talking about the importance of God's Word, let's read the whole chapter together this morning, and we'll break it up a little bit and do some commentary or details along the way. But open the Word with me, Jeremiah 36, starting in verse 1. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah till now. Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them, they will each turn from their wicked ways. Then I will forgive their wickedness and their sin. FYI, the fourth year of Jehoiakim is 605 B.C. The words warning of judgment are aimed at bringing about repentance, as Jeremiah's ministry and message has often been, right, that we have read already together in this book. And uh, these words of repentance, if people will heed them, be receptive to them, it can prevent the coming disaster that really God's people have brought upon themselves. As we read a few weeks back, they were the ones that have forsaken God through their practices of idolatry and different injustices they were committing. All right, now to verse 4. So Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and while Jeremiah dictated all the words of the Lord he had spoken to him, Baruch wrote them on the scroll. Then Jeremiah told Baruch, I am restricted. I am not allowed to go to the Lord's temple. So you go to the house of the Lord on a day of fasting and read to the people from the scroll the words of the Lord that you wrote as I dictated. Read them to all the people of Judah who come in from their towns. People, uh, sorry, perhaps they will bring their petition before the Lord and will each turn from their wicked ways. For the anger and wrath pronounced against this people by the Lord are great. So Baruch, son of Neriah, did everything Jeremiah the prophet told him to do. At the Lord's temple, he read the words of the Lord from the scroll. So here we get a detailed account of how God's words to Jeremiah are accurately transcribed by Jeremiah's personal scribe, Baruch. And Baruch also has to be the one to go and share this word in the temple. We would have expected Jeremiah to be the one to go and read the scroll himself, but it says that he is restricted from being there. We don't get a lot of details for that, but if you read other places in the book of Jeremiah, specifically chapter 26, if you want to read that this afternoon, there was an example there when Jeremiah did go and preach the, the words of the Lord uh, that God had given him the message in the temple area, and all the officials and the priests that were present there were so offended by the word of God that they threatened to sentence 
Jeremiah to death. So maybe he has been banned from being there, or maybe he's not going because he is trying to be careful with, not, uh, with his life. Maybe he, he knows his life would be threatened. So Baruch heads there to read. Verse 9. It's now in the ninth month of the fifth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. A time of fasting before the Lord was proclaimed for all the people in Jerusalem and those who had come from the towns of Judah. From the room of Geram, Ger, Gem, sorry, it's, it's tricky to read all these names today, even though I have practiced them. From the room of Gemariah, son of Shaphan, the secretary, which was in the upper courtyard at the entrance of the new gate of the temple, Baruch read to all the people at the Lord's temple the words of Jeremiah from the scroll. Okay, so now we're at a little bit different timeline. In the ninth month of Jehoiakim's fifth year is about December of 604 BC. This is a year or so later than the chronological notice in verse 1. And at this time, a solemn fast is declared, and many people in Judah stream to the temple to pray as they're fasting. The text does not give the reason for this day of fasting, but as maybe some of you are assuming, just like a lot of the scholars I was reading this week, assume that this is probably in response to what is happening with the Babylonians and how they're gaining power. Nebuchadnezzar is now their leader. And in 605 BC, that was the battle at Carchemish where they defeated Egypt. And some of you may know or may not that Jehoiakim had been placed on the throne in Judah by who? The Egyptians. We read that back in 2 Kings, I believe, chapter 23. So the fact that the Babylonians have now defeated the Egyptians, well, that doesn't bode well for Jehoiakim and the um, Judean leadership who are allies with Egypt. And by the ninth month, specifically, of Jehoiakim's fifth year, that December of 604, Nebuchadnezzar's army was on the Palestinian coast already. They have just sacked the Philistine city, Ashkelon, and they are in prime position to now attack the kingdom of Judah. So this is probably why everyone is fasting and praying, because the Babylonians are coming. Amazing how intensely they decide to turn back to God when this kind of threat comes up. Reading on in verse 11, when Micaiah, son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the scroll, he went down to the secretary's room in the royal palace where all the officials were sitting. Elishama, the secretary, uh, Deliah, son of Shemaiah, Elnathan, the son of Achbor, Gamariah, son of Shaphan, be patient with me, or Zedekiah, son of Hananiah, and all the other officials. After, yeah, amen. All right, we still got a little ways. After Micaiah told them everything he had heard Baruch read, after he had heard Baruch read to the people from the scroll, all the officials sent Jehudai, son of Nethaniah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Cushai, to say to Baruch, bring the scroll from which you have read to the people and come. So Baruch, son of Neriah, went to them with the scroll in his hand. They said to him, sit down, please, read it to us. So Baruch read it to them. When they heard all these words, they looked at each other in fear and said to Baruch, we must report all these words to the king. Then they asked Baruch, tell us, how did you come to write all this? Did Jeremiah dictate it? Yes, Baruch replied. He dictated all the words to me, and I wrote them in ink on the scroll. 
Then the official said to Baruch, you and Jeremiah, go and hide. Don't let anyone know where you are. After they put the scroll in the room of Elishama, the secretary, they went to the king in the courtyard and reported everything to him. Well, let's also take a breather after all that and talk about it. This is the bright spot of chapter 36. These officials who are named, right, and their fathers and their sons, you can see that there's a lot of relationships here. Uh, in fact, Josiah's secretary, uh, Shaphan, he is, we see, the father of Gamaria and the grandfather of Micaiah. El Nathan is one of the reformers. If you remember from back in 2 Kings chapter 22, he helped bring Uriah back from Egypt, back when Josiah was hearing the word of the Lord and, and everybody was reforming their ways. These were some of the officials that were on board with that before. And so we see some of these officials loyal to Josiah before, still receptive to God's word today, react in a way that is similar to the way they reacted back in the book of 2 Kings when they heard the word of the Lord again. They have this reaction of shock and fear. And they tell Baruch and Jeremiah to hide because I assume they figure that the king is not going to be, uh, respond favorably to these words. And their lives could be in danger. Yet despite the risk, these officials are willing to not only be receptive to God's word, they are brave enough to go and share it with the king. Reading on in verse 21 as we get to that moment when they share it with the king. The king sent Jehudai to get the scroll, and Jehudai brought it from the room of Elishama, the secretary, and read it to the king and all the officials standing beside him. It was in the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter apartment with a fire burning in the fire pot in front of him. Whenever Jehudai had read three or four columns of the scroll, the king cut them off with a scribe's knife and threw them into the fire pot until the entire scroll was burned in the fire. The king and all his attendants who heard all these words showed no fear, nor did they tear their clothes. Even though Elnathan and Deliah and Gamariah urged the king, do not burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. Instead, the king commanded Jeremiel, a son of the king, Sariah, son of Azrael, and Shalamiah, son of Abdiel, to arrest Baruch the scribe and Jeremiah the prophet. But the Lord had hidden them. So this is the low part of the chapter. In fact, this is maybe the lowest moment of Jeremiah's ministry as a prophet. The king of Judah not only rejects the words of God, he destroys them. We are intended to see the stark contrast between how unreceptive Jehoiakim was to God's word compared to how receptive his father was. Did you catch some of that, right? Remember what happened when Josiah hears the word of the Lord? He tears his robe, showing a sign of, of, of respect to God's word and the authority of God's word. But in contemptuous fashion, Jehoiakim cuts that same Hebrew word that is used to talk about uh, Josiah cutting his robe. He cuts the scroll into pieces, not his garment, and throws it into the fire. But there is still hope as we read in the next few verses. Verse 27, after the king burned the scroll containing the words that, the, that Baruch had written at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. 
take another scroll and write on it all the words that were on the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, burned up. Also tell Jehoiakim, king of Judah, this is what the Lord says. You burned that scroll and said, why did you write on it that the king of Babylon would certainly come and destroy this land and wipe from it both man and beast? Therefore, this is what the Lord says about Jehoiakim, king of Judah. He will have no one to sit on the throne of David. His body will be thrown out and exposed to the heat by day and frost by night. I will punish him and his children and his attendants for their wickedness. I will bring on them and those living in Jerusalem and all the people of Judah every disaster I pronounced against them because they have not listened. So Jeremiah took another scroll, gave it to the scribe Baruch, son of Neriah, and as Jeremiah dictated, Baruch wrote on it all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to them. So here the, the chapter ends on an encouraging and hopeful note. Well, not for Jehoiakim, but for the word of God, right? Despite the efforts of the king, God's word cannot be silenced, nor can it be annihilated by human beings. It endures. God continues the work through Jeremiah, writes another scroll, dictates it to Baruch. All right. So what do we do, family, with all that we read today? What direction should we go uh, in our response to all that? Many details we could focus on, but I have just been impressed this week, family, to bring you a very simple, simple message today. And circle back to that question I asked in the beginning. How important is the Word of God to you? Do you engage it regularly? Are you receptive to letting it shape, form who you are? Now, I'm assuming, at least I hope, that none of us here are being as unreceptive to God's Word as Jehoiakim, right? I'm pretty sure none of us are out there burning Bibles or trying to intentionally cut Scripture out from our lives or the lives of others. But that doesn't mean that we may not be struggling with being unreceptive and unresponsive to Scripture. I came across some stats this week as I was researching like how people engage the Bible. I have some of those on the screen for you to, to see. Hopefully they pop up okay. I'm going to look at it this way with you. So here is a study from the American Bible Society. They do research like this every year. They've done it, I think, for about 12 uh, to 15 years of tracking Bible engagement in the U.S. And they found that in 2022, 2023 is not completed uh, quite yet. They have some figures for 2023, but this is all for 2022. 39% of U.S. adults consider themselves Bible users or, or churchgoers, and they, they are people who read the Bible on their own outside of a church setting. Isn't that cool? Now, that may seem kind of low, but with 330 so million in this country, that's somewhere between 100 to 110 million people that say they read their Bible on their own outside of a church setting. However, that is an 11% drop just from 2021. So it was more like half of the people said they were uh, they read their Bible or engaged with it outside of a church setting. So that's roughly 25 million less people this year engaging in Scripture than last year. And see if you can follow this. 60% of that 39%, right? Okay, so like 60% of that 110 million people or so that say that they are Bible users actually only read their Bible twice a year or less. 
That's not reading all the way through the Bible. That's just picking it up and engaging it somehow. So even though 39% say, yeah, we, we read the Bible outside of church, um, but they only read it once or twice a year. Okay, so of that 40% of the 39%, are you following? Did you carry the fifth and you're, okay, you with me? All right, you people who like math. 40% of those Bible, of that 39% of Bible users read their Bible three times or more then, but then that break, we can break that down even more and see that 7% of them, it's only three or four times a year, 7% just once a month, 5% once a week, 7% two or three times a week, which is a little better, but only 4%, four to six times a week, and it's cool we got at least 10% daily. But 14% of that 39%, right, really engage their Bible regularly at all. That's the reality we're dealing with in our context today. Um, so then I found another study that was done, you can go to the next slide, thanks Ken, um, of benefits of biblical engagement. This is a study that was done with 40,000 people ages eight to 80. It was a few years ago, um, pre-COVID also, numbers might be different now, uh, but this is from the Center of Bible Engagement. Uh, when people engage in scripture one time a week, uh, which could include a pastor even just introducing, in, instructing the congregation to open your Bibles like we did today, there was a negligible effect on some key areas in their life, like if that was their engagement of Scripture. Um, the same result was true if people engaged in Scriptures on their own two to three times a week. They did not see like a really big impact on their life, even if they engaged in some way a couple times a week. Three times a week, there was a small improvement. But what was fascinating is that when Bible engagement reached at least four days a week, it didn't have to be super long, but they at least spent four days or more engaging in God's word each week, the effects on the impact of their life spiked in an astounding way. And I have just some of them. I didn't even list all the categories in the next slide of how just reading four days a week, how it increased. Uh, feeling lonely dropped 30% for those people that was four uh, days more um, compared to those even just reading it three days or more. Anger issues dropped 32%. Bitterness in relationships dropped 40%. Feeling spiritually stagnant dropped 60%. Struggling with viewing pornography dropped 61%. And discipling others jumped 230%. So then the next slide. The conclusion that they had was that genuine transformation came with consistent Bible engagement. They, I think the title of their study was The Power of Four, at least four days a week. I found it very interesting that in that study, even if you read it once or twice a week, it didn't really have a lasting impact on your life. Not to say that God's Word can't have an impact, even if we might just read it a handful of times a year or, or maybe once a week. I mean, that's better than nothing. But it kind of puts into perspective as we might look at a story like this and say, oh, Jehoiakim, I am far from that, Lord. I love your word. I, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not against it. I'm not cutting it to pieces and trying to cut it out of my life. However, if I'm not regularly engaging it, am I letting it impact my life any more than someone like Jehoiakim? Genuine transformation comes from consistent engagement. God's word. And there was two reasons why that, the, that same um, research study found that people gave why they struggle reading that four times a week 
or more. And the number one reason was time. They said they don't have enough time. The second reason, which was very popular, especially among Gen Zers and younger, it was that they don't know where to start. Don't know where to start with reading the Bible. So I thought, family, maybe I should talk about some practical ideas for us to find time to engage God's Word, or talk about some strategies on where or how to start reading the Bible personally in your life. In fact, I think I have done that in some other sermons already since I've been with you. But then I thought, I don't think any of that is going to matter if our answer to that opening question is something like, I don't think very much. Unless we decide that our engagement with God's word, along with his presence, is the most important priority of our daily lives, then it won't matter how many ideas we talk about here on how to have more time or where to start. I think we will find time, I think we will figure out a place to start if God's word is our top priority. You ever notice how that's the case in your own life when something becomes very important to you, you find the time to do it? You somehow figure out a way to go about doing it? Yeah, amen. We need to do that with the Word of God. I recently got invited to join this uh, basketball league over at the Loma Linda Filipino Church. Praise God, it's for people 35 years or older, so it's more my speed. And I didn't even want to do it. I could probably count on my one hand, maybe two at the most, uh, how many times I have played basketball since college. I used to play a lot of basketball, all through high school, all through college at PUC, but just haven't played it really since then, a few times. And so I was kind of reluctant to do it. You know, I never have time to, to do that kind of thing. It's sacrificing every Sunday and, and maybe a, f- a few practices and get-togethers. But I did it as a favor to a friend who was begging me to play. So like, fine, it's church league, older guys. It's probably going to be really chill. It was not chill. It was very competitive. Like a lot of the people that were there were people that I played against or with in college and high school down in this area. Like everybody was there that I knew that I ever played against or played with. And I was terrible. I was so embarrassingly out of shape and rusty with my basketball skills. It was terrible. I came home after that first game, and I said, I am going to make it a priority to get back in shape and shake off this rust. So I started waking up at 5 a.m. to either work out or drive all the way to Drayson Center to play pickup basketball. I changed my diet. I did weight training on top of that. I even started doing drills on YouTube. That's how nerdy I was with this. I would spend like 10 minutes in my backyard every day doing dribbling drills, and my daughters would make fun of me. And I gotta tell you, eight weeks later, my basketball game dramatically improved. I even lost 15 pounds in the process. Thank you. (laughs) And I am super, super busy. And I had so many things to improve on. Every area of my basketball game was terrible. I didn't know where to start. But I found the time, and I figured out a way. Why? Because I made it my priority, right? I think we would find the time and figure out how to engage Scripture for those magical four times a week or more if we would change our mindset and decide that God's Word, along with His presence, is the most important thing we could do each day. 
Like, what if we decided to make our Bibles mean as much to our daily lives as our cell phones? You ever leave for work in the morning and you realize that your cell phone is at home? What do you do? Turn the car around and you head home. Even if it's going to make you late for work, you go home to get your phone because you know you can't survive the day without it. And I know our Bibles are in our phones, okay? So maybe the illustration doesn't work perfectly, but I bet you are not racing home to get your phone because your Bible's in it, right? What if that's how we felt about our Bibles? Like you're on your way to work and you're like, oh, I forgot my Bible at home, the living Word of God. And you turn around to go get it, even if it's going to make you late for work because you know you can't survive without it. What if we scrolled through our Bibles like we do our phones all day, every day? You know when your phone gives you that screen time report, are you a little embarrassed like me? Four and a half hours this week per day, that was my average on my phone. Three and a half of it was on YouTube. Darren, didn't you just fast from that? How are you already like, it's terrible. What if our Bible time report was like that? Like what our screen time report was? Or at the very least, what if the Bible app took up the bulk of your screen time report that your phone gave you? What if during an emergency, your Bible rather than your phone was the first place you turned for help? We usually don't come close to engaging our Bibles as much as we engage our phones. I think we need a mindset change. God's Word, along with His presence, as the most important priority for us day after day. Now, please don't understand, family, the point of this message. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty or overwhelmed right now. Inspired, yes, but not guilty or overwhelmed in the sense that you have to leave here feeling like, well, I got to go read my Bible four hours a day, or I'm going to feel guilty about it, or, or cover to cover before next Sabbath. No, that's not what I'm getting at. The message today is about a mindset change about consistently engaging in God's Word because it's your priority, right? In fact, if you are not currently engaging in God's Word four times a week or more, then I'd encourage you to start small. Do it four days a week or more, but start small. Maybe it's just a verse of the day on your Bible app. Maybe it's something that you engage with not just that morning on your app, but I have a friend who writes sticky notes, puts them on their steering wheel, puts that same app of the day on a sticky note in their cubicle, and so they're meditating on it all day. Maybe that's something you can do. Or even if it's just that one time a day when it sends you that notification, do it at least four or more times a week. Or take a small section of a chapter each day. Read it with a friend. Text them about it. It's the constant and consistent time at the feet of Jesus studying his word that matters. That's what I want you to be inspired to do today. That's what's going to impact your life. Kind of like what Lois Tverberg describes in her book. I don't know if you've ever read her book, Walking in the Dust of Rabbi Jesus. She uses an illustration from a famous first century rabbi named Rabbi Akiva. It goes like this. One day as Rabbi Akiva was shepherding his flocks, he noticed a tiny stream trickling down a hillside, dripping over a ledge on its way toward the river below. Under that ledge was a massive boulder. Surprisingly, the boulder bore a deep impression. The drip, drip, drip of water over the centuries had hollowed away the stone. Akiva commented, if mere water can do this to hard rock, how much more can God's word 
carve away into this heart of flesh. Akiva realized that if the water had flowed over the rock all at once, the rock would have been unchanged. It was the slow but steady impact of each small droplet, day after day, year after year, that completely reformed the stone. Lois Tverberg then comments after sharing that story, when I first started studying the Bible and, and digging into the, the Hebraic context and language, I wanted one commentary that would teach me everything, one class that would explain it all. If I could learn all the right answers in one marathon event, all the better. I find now, though, that God likes to reveal truth over many years. As I study alongside others, I realize now that big splashes aren't usually God's way of doing things. Instead, it's through the slow drip of study and prayer, day after day, year after year, as he shapes us into what he wants us to be. Family, my simple appeal to you today is that you will let the word of God, day after day, year after year, shape you into the person he wants you to be. Lord, that is the way we want to live. One in your spirit, walking hand in hand, that people will know we are yours by the love that flows from our life. And Lord, thank you for your word that teaches us how to do that. May it be our most important priority each day. Thank you for the gift of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.